If you'd like it, open up your Bibles to Matthew 26, starting in verse 47. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with the great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he, his betrayer had given them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. But Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And suddenly, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest, and cut off his ear. But Jesus said to him, Put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he will provide me with more than twelve legions of angels? How, then, could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus. In, those, in that hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you, teaching in the temple, and you did not seize me. But all this was done, that scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled, that all the disciples forsook him, forsook him and fled. Thank you, Evan, for the reading of the scripture. Um... You know, when I come to these scriptures, I think, okay, what can I find here? What new is going to come up? It's, it's a story, you know, here's, here's the things that took place. And I'm always amazed as we start delving into it in depth and in detail, what starts emerging. Uh, there's a reason why the words are there and the story is there and uh, various things are being shared. So we continue this morning to work out our way through the last few days of Jesus' life here on this earth as a human being, uh, which is often referred to as the passion of Jesus Christ, uh, which includes all the events leading up to and including the death of Christ on the cross. Now this particular section deals with the betrayal and arrest of Jesus, and it brings, brings into clear focus the final moments and plan of Judas who schemed to be paid 30 pieces of silver to give Jesus up. 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. Which, of you th- which, if you think about it, was appropriate in a weird way? Because Jesus himself said, I came to serve, not to be served. Philippians said he humbled himself to become what? A servant, a slave, even to the point of death. So the little town of Bethlehem that we celebrated during the Christmas time gave the world its most loved and respected person, Jesus Christ. And a little town called Kerioth, 23 miles south of Jerusalem, gave the world its most despised character, Judas Iscariot. And we talked about that. Iscariot just means from Kerioth. Judas from the town of Kerioth. Now Judas A name down through the age which is a synonym for betrayer. One who you've put your trust in and then turns around and stabs you in the back. But the two come into stark confrontation in our passage here this morning. Light versus dark. Jesus, the light of the world, versus Satan, the darkness of the world, who entered into Judas. Seemingly, in this story, Satan gets the upper hand and defeats 
Jesus in this round. But is that true? Is that true? Well, let's take a look at the passage and see, see what takes place here and see what, what's going on. You remember that Jesus on Thursday night, he, he and the disciples uh, went and celebrated the Passover. Um, he told them that one of them was going to be the tr- betrayer, and he identified the betrayer and then told him to go out and do what he had planned to do. And while he was gone, they celebrated the Lord's Supper, and Jesus taught them, and then he prayed for his disciples. In John chapter 17, you find that uh, prayer. And when the prayer was done, he and the eleven remaining disciples went up to the Mount of Olives to a very special place called the Garden of Gethsemane, where apparently he and his disciples went quite often, according to the Gospel of John. So it's no wonder that Judas knew probably where Jesus and the disciples would be that particular night. Now that last week we looked at the battle Jesus had against the temptations of Satan there in the garden to get out of experiencing the wrath of God on the cross. And the way he triumphed over that temptation, we noted, was by falling on his face and praying to his Father. And we know that Jesus took those thoughts and those, those emotions captive and made them obedient to the will of his Father and stood in that victory and resolved to move forward in his Father's will. Then he came back to his disciples who should have been praying, but were sleeping, and told them it was time. Let's go, my betrayer is here. And he could see in the distance the torches and the lanterns and the mob of people coming toward the garden led by Judas. And that's where our passage starts this morning. Now for us to get a deeper understanding of what's going on in this particular scenario, we need to understand who all are involved in this incident. And to do that, I would like to take a look at the attack of the mob, the kiss of the traitor, the defection of the disciples, and the triumph of the Savior. Let's first look at the attack of the mob. Now in verse 47 it says, While he was still speaking while he was still telling his disciples come on wake up Judas and the gang are here while he was in the process of saying that while he was still speaking Judas one of the 12 arrived now i kind of find it fascinating how he's identified here by the gospel writers have you ever thought about that i would have thought they would have identified him as Judas a traitor Judas a betrayer Judas the one who who uh, who ratted out Jesus But to them, it was inconceivable, one of the twelve. Unimaginable that one of the twelve could do this. But just that phrase illustrates so clearly how one could outwardly be a part of a fellowship of believers and then turn their back so profoundly on God. With him, Matthew says, was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people, the religious leaders. And John adds, with torches and lanterns and weapons. You see, the Jews were behind this. They had solicited the Roman government uh, who sent, according to John chapter 18, a detachment of soldiers. Now, this wasn't a group of 10 or 15 soldiers. The word that's used is spira. Spira is one-tenth of a legion, a legion being 6,000. So this was a group of at least 600 soldiers. The Greek dictionary says it could be anywhere between 600 to 1,000. A little bit of an overkill, don't you think? 
Added to that was a group of chief priests and Pharisees and elders and some of their servants, because we meet one of their servants near the end of the passage. So there could have been upwards of a group of at least a thousand people armed to the hilt. Why? Because a few Jewish leaders hated and despised Jesus because they couldn't control him, because they didn't understand him, because he was contrary to what they were. And so they convinced Pilate that he was like Barabbas, you know, that that insurrectionist, the rebel, the revolutionary, and the horribly dangerous man with this horribly dangerous group of 12 fishermen and tax collector. A few despicable people were able to rabble-rouse and gather a mob with a mob mentality against Jesus because they wanted to eliminate Jesus, and they didn't care how. And if you think about it, that's really a very good illustration of the wickedness of the Christ-rejecting world that we live in today. There's still a world of people who attack Christ, as it were, a world of people who reject him, that don't believe that he is king, that don't believe that he is God, that don't acknowledge him as Lord, who see him as a threat, someone to be done away with, to, to be put aside, to be eliminated, to be canceled. And seeing the attitudes and actions of the crowd that came to meet Jesus, I think we can pull out some common characteristics of a group like that. First of all, it was an unjust mob. They were carrying out something for which there was no reason. Jesus had done no crime. It was completely unjust to take him prisoner and execute him. We're going to be looking at the unjustness of his trials beginning next week. But he was without sin. He had done no wrong. Even Pilate, the ungodly man that he was, said, I find no basis for a charge against this man. And the crowds of people today who actually, uh, who adamantly refuse Christ are really no different than the clamoring mob that came up the Mount of Olives there that day. They don't know anything about Christ, yet they reject Him, they refuse Him, and deny that He is the Son of God or the Savior of the world. And like the crowd of Jesus' time, these are people today who are unrighteous, who are unjust, unfair. Why? Well, that brings us to the second characteristic of that crowd that came up into that garden. They were mindless. That sounds pretty derogatory. But typical of any kind of a crowd, they are led by a few very loudly outspoken people. You see that all over the world. The majority are mindlessly doing what a few angry people would have them do. they just kind of going along with the crowd. They're swept up in the bitterness and hatred of, of others and never never made any personal evaluation of Jesus Christ. It happened then, and it continues to happen today. Thirdly, I think we can see in a crowd like that, that they are basically cowardly. That's usually the mark of an unruly crowd. Strength in numbers, right? It's amazing what a crowd can do because you've got that protection from everybody. They find strength in rejecting Christ, surrounded by others. But if you were probably able to get them off by themselves and have a civil conversation, you'd find that they're probably not nearly as bold as when they're mixed in with a crowd. And then fourthly, typically a crowd like that would be unholy, profane. Profane. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines profane as 
to treat something sacred, in this case someone sacred, with abuse, irreverence, and contempt. That's exactly what they did. And that's pretty much what that crowd was. Jesus said that he would be turned over into the hands of sinners. An inconceivable thing that the completely holy Son of God should be put into unholy hands. Those hands that would bind him, that would beat him, that would slap him, that would tug on his beard, push a crown of thorns on his head, drive a spear into his side, and nail him to the cross. The ultimate profanity. Yet the crowds of today treat Jesus with their own kind of profanity in rejecting him. Not much has changed. Treating him and his name with abuse, irreverence, and contempt, as a dictionary says. So that's the crowd. Then we see the kiss of the traitor. The kiss of the traitor. Verse 48, Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man, is the man arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, uh, Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Now one commentator asked the question, What kind of deranged mind would choose that? And his answer was, only one possessed by Satan himself, which we know he was. You see, Matthew used the Greek word kataphileo to describe the way Judas kissed him. It wasn't just a peck on the cheek or a, a, a three-time three three air kiss that the French give, give each other uh, as, as they greet each other. It was a kiss of a very close friend was, who was so happy to see the other. Who was really the one who was so happy to see Jesus and betray him? None other than Satan who had entered Judas. And at that moment, Luke chapter 22, verse 48 tells us that Jesus asked a question, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? And I got to wondering, was Jesus asking the question of Judas, or was he speaking to Satan? He's done that before with Peter. There was never any friendship between Jesus and Satan, or Satan and man, for that matter. And Genesis tells us that there was always enmity between Satan and man. And ever since Satan rebelled against God, there was always enmity between Satan and Jesus. And I could see Jesus looking right through Judas and speaking to Satan, are you serious right now? Are you seriously betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? But Jesus chose to endure that despicable kiss. In fact, in verse 50, Jesus says to him, do what you came for, friend. Do what you came for, friend. Now, interestingly, the word for friend is not the actual common word for friend. It's a word used more for a comrade or an associate rather than a true friend. Judas, to Jesus, was no longer a friend. He had turned his back on Jesus. This is actually another illustration that we can bring out. It's not an illustration of the wicked world this time, but rather an illustration of a false disciple. This is actually the ugliest of all Ill illustrations because it's of someone who pretended love and loyalty and then betrayed Jesus and turned, and turned away. It's an example of a lost opportunity. No one had ever had a greater opportunity and lost it than Judas. 
He's the ultimate example of wasted privilege and a perfect picture of the love of self and of money. Really a classic illustration of a hypocrite. And many today are the same. They're false disciples. The church in the larger sense is full of them. They pretend loyalty and love to Christ. They, they do the Christian thing. They, they go to church. They sing in the choir. They serve on committees. But when they see that it's not really going the way they thought it would or, or they're not getting out of Jesus what they expected to get out of Him, they'll go for some, something else or go somewhere else. False disciple. Thirdly, we see the defeat of the disciples the other disciples. In the middle of verse 50, we're told that once Judas gave them the signal with that kiss, then the men stepped forward and seized Jesus and arrested him. Now John tells us in chapter 18, they were the Roman soldiers, the temple police, the Jewish authorities, and they kind of bum-rushed him and bound him like a common criminal. Why? Because they had seen his authority and power during the three years of his ministry. The power and authority over nature. The power and authority over people. The power and authority over evil spirits. And they had all just been physically knocked over by some unseen force when he identified himself. And we're going to look at that in just a minute. But then something interesting happens, and we need to look at Luke's account a minute in chapter 22. When it says, when Jesus' followers saw what was going on, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? Now, interestingly, Jesus didn't even have enough time to respond to that question, because I know what his response would have been. And both Luke and Matthew tell us, with that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. There's a number of interesting things to note here briefly. The Greek uses the word behold. The translation that Evan read this morning uses behold. I don't know why some translations take that out. It's a great word. It's a word that means, uh, it's an exclamation, a, a surprise, unexpectedness. Behold, one of his companions reached for his sword. It caught everybody by surprise. Secondly, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all say one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword. How then do we know it's Peter? Except that, you know, that's what Peter's like, right? Because John tells us. Is that significant? Well, I think so. You see, it was, it was dark and in the middle of the night when all of this went down with a thousand people milling around, charging and rushing and arresting Jesus. And it happened so quickly, no one in the crowd probably knew exactly who had done that. And it was done to the servant of the high priest, which probably was, would receive capital punishment. And Jesus had big plans for Peter. You remember that, right? Remember him saying, you are Peter, upon this rock I will do what? I'm going to build my church. It was not time yet for Peter to be taken away and put away with. So why did John then spill the beans and tell everybody who it was? Well, because John's gospel was the last one written many, many years later. After all was said and done and no one really cared anymore. I find it interesting that we find a certain amount of protection given by the Holy Spirit to Peter in that moment, as the other gospel writers are writing the text. 
But knowing Peter, we probably would have guessed anyway who it was. And he drew with a short, close combat sword, probably about this long. Now, I don't think Peter was actually going for the man's ear. He was a fisherman. He wasn't a swordsman. He wasn't that adept. I think he was going for his head, and the guy ducked or dodged. Now, where did he get his sword? Did you ever wonder about that? What's a fisherman doing with a sword, for goodness sake? Immediately, excuse me, interestingly, Luke tells us in chapter 22, just after having celebrated the Passover, somehow the disciples had gotten a hold of two swords. Because the disciples said, see, Lord, we've got two swords. They had to have talked about it among each other ahead of time to go find these swords. The fishermen don't usually carry swords. But even then, Jesus said, that's enough. Not in, that will be enough to defend ourselves. But as in, that's enough. Stop it. We don't fight with the sword. Even when Peter cut off the servant's ear, Jesus told him, put your sword back in its place. He was saying, that's not how we fight you remember what Jesus uh, said in John eighteen thirty six to Pilate? And we'll be looking at that uh, a little bit later on. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would do what? They would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But he said, now my kingdom is from another place. This is what the Apostle Paul was talking about in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, when he said, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. That's not how we struggle but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of the evil in the heavenly realms. That's how we do battle. Christianity does not advance by the sword. The Crusades were a horrible thing, a horrible blemish on the church. Other religions use holy wars, but not the true church of Jesus Christ. There is nothing holy about a holy war. John tells us in chapter 18, verse 11, when Peter cut off the servant's ear, Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? And to prove his point, he reached over and healed the man's ear. I don't know if he reached down, picked up his ear, and slapped it upside his face, or if he just touched his face and grew another ear. But either way, the servant got a new ear, or another ear, or his ear back. It was healed. But even in that highly emotionally charged moment, the sword going, the healing, and and the crowds around him, Jesus teaches, that amazing, Jesus teaches why we don't fight like that. Let me list just a few things briefly because I want to get on to the character of Jesus and what took place with him here in this scenario. But Jesus actually gives three reasons. First of all, it's fatal. It is fatal. Verse 52, put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. Why? For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. This goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. Part of God's law, whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God, God made mankind. And Jesus is basically reiterating that law right here. Peter, put that thing away. You take a life and they have the right to take your life. That's God's divine law for the preservation of the sanctity of human life. God made mankind in His image. 
And we have no right to mess with that for our own purposes, for revenge purposes. There is no place for vengeance. It becomes murder, and the penalty for murder is death. Peter, you start swinging your sword. It's going to be fatal. Secondly, it was foolish. Foolish because of who Christ is. Notice verse 50, uh, 53, excuse me. Do you think I cannot call on my Father and He will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? See how foolish it is? Jesus can take care of Himself. At that moment, if He had wanted, He could have had 12 legions come to His defense. 12 legions, 72,000. Actually, He said more than 72,000 angels. You know how powerful that is? Back in 2 Kings 19, one angel slew 185,000 Assyrians all by himself. So 72,000 angels could do a lot of damage. Just saying. Peter, put your sword away. You're being foolish. So often we want to defend ourselves, don't we? We want to defend our faith. We want to defend the name of Jesus. But God will conquer in God's own time, in God's own way, in God's own place, by His own power. In Deuteronomy 32, 35, God said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. In due time, their foot will slip. Their day of disaster is near, and their doom rushes upon them. And then there's a third and perhaps the most important reason, and that is fulfillment. In verse 54, he says, But how then would the Scripture be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? We can't fight. He's saying, you know Scripture says it has to be this way. I have to be taken captive. Jesus has to be left, uh, led like a lamb to the slaughter. Isaiah 53, 7 quietly, peacefully, calmly, not violently. It has to be this way. It has to be that I, I, I was betrayed, as Psalm 41.9 says. Even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has turned against me. It has to be like Psalm 55, that, that one with whom I break bread has turned against me. It has to be like Zechariah chapter 11, that I be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. It has to be the way Psalm 22 predicts all the events of the crucifixion. It has to be like all the prophets said it would be. That's how it must be. So put away your sword, Peter. The Scriptures can't be fulfilled. And then verse 56 here in Matthew 26, Jesus says it again, but this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets may be fulfilled. Then it says at the end of that verse, then all the disciples deserted him and fled, every one of them. Why? Two reasons. One, Jesus said they would. (laughs) Back in verse 31, you remember. This very night you will all fall away on account of me. But secondly, I think they were expecting Jesus to come through at the last minute. They'd seen his power over and over again and were pretty sure he was going to do it again. But when he didn't do it and he allowed himself or allowed the crowd to arrest him and take him away, it scared them. It wasn't what they expected. And they ran. This is actually an illustration of many believers in churches today. You know, the disciples were very sure of themselves. 
in their own faith, in their own stance. There was no way they were going to desert Jesus. They, they reiterated that over and over again. But they did. Why? They were unprepared. They were sleeping instead of praying. They were confident in their own power. They were overconfident in their good intentions. And the same thing can happen to us when we get complacent in our faith. When we don't continue to study and know God's Word and put it into practice. And when we don't spend the timing, boring though it may seem, in prayer. Throwing ourselves on God's mercy in order to stand firm under trials and temptations. Secondly, the disciples were impulsive. Again, not unlike many of us. They acted on impulse rather than reason. They acted on emotion rather than revelation. They, they didn't think through what was right. They didn't reason through what was best according to God's Word. And if we're a victim of our own anxieties, we're going to have problems. And the third thing is that they were impatient. They were impatient. They couldn't wait for the deliverance of God. They couldn't wait to see what wonderful thing God would have done. Now, why do I say that? There's something very interesting that we pick up in John's account. When Jesus asked the crowd who they were looking for, and they said, um, they said Jesus, and when he said, I am he, they, they all fell down. And when they got back up again, they asked him again, and again they said they were looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And John in chapter 18, verse 89, it says, Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he has spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. And I think perhaps in their impatience and fear, the disciples missed something amazing that could have taken place. If Jesus wanted them to be left alone by, those, by the soldiers, they were going to be left alone. But the disciples didn't get a chance to see how because they ran in fear. I believe they missed an opportunity to see God work in a miraculous way. How many of us are impatient? I'll put my first hand up. Yeah, we are an impatient, impatient society. We want to get it done. And I wonder how many times we've missed the best that God has because we were impatient. Rather than wait to see God deliver us, we take the easy route of escape. We run in fear. We depend on our own resources, which in reality is an indication of our lack in trust, of trust in Him. So we, <coughs> excuse me, so we looked at the crowd with the mob mentality. We looked at the false disciple who turned his back on Jesus, and we've seen the disciples full of fear who were unprepared to trust Jesus fully. There's one more person in this narrative and we need, that we need to look at, and that, of course, is Jesus Christ. Now, the crowd saw Jesus as defeated. He was tied up. He was arrested. Judas saw Jesus as defeated. He got him. He, he got his 30 pieces of silver. He, Got him arrested. Even the disciples saw Jesus as defeated. They ran in fear. But we need to see the triumph of the Savior in this moment. 
One might look at this scene and it could look like, look like something that tears down Christ's glory, something that robs him of his majesty. But on the other hand, if we look carefully at the words of the Spirit of God and the heart of Matthew here, we actually see just the opposite. It's in spite of all these things that we see the triumph of Christ. And the first way we see it is his confrontation with the crowd. If we go back to verse 49, Judas greets Jesus and gives him a kiss to identify Jesus to the crowd. Now, there's something else that happens here that Matthew doesn't mention, but both uh, John and Luke do. Sometime right about that moment, I think it's probably right after the kiss from Judas, John writes in chapter 18, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, went out right up to the crowd, went to the crowd and asked them, who is it you want? He went right up to them and asked, who are you looking for? And by doing that, he basically stripped Judas from any satisfaction for having done anything meaningful or necessary. Judas became insignificant, just like that. Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. One commentator put it this way, a thousand people fell over like dead fish, (laughs) hit the ground flat on their backs. Boom. Who do you think is in control here? One statement from his mouth, I am he. Actually, if you look at the Greek, if you look at the Greek, you know what he said? Ego eimi, I am. M. Boom. Talk about a mic drop moment. I am, and they all fell to the ground, including Judas. The point is, in this confrontation with the crowd, we see who is in charge. Jesus was never a victim. He had total control of that mob. Then, interesting, he let them get back up again. <laughs> Why? Listen to what Jesus says to the crowd in Luke 22, 53. This is your hour when darkness reigns. He is giving Satan and the realm of darkness this moment in time. Jesus is giving that to them. Satan never had any power or authority over Jesus. The chief priests and soldiers never had any power or authority over Jesus to to take him. Jesus is in total control, gave them that moment. By God's sovereignty, he has given hell this moment in time. This is hell's day from midnight until just after dawn on Sunday when the tomb is burst open. That was their moment. And so we see his total triumph, even as he faces that crowd. It's God who is in control of all. The crowd is the victim. They fall down when they meet him, and they do what they do under the power of hell because God said they could do it. Secondly, we see the triumph of the Savior in his confrontation with Judas. In verse 50, he says, do what you came for. Do what you got to do. No struggle, no anger, no rage, no wrath, no venom. He could have wiped out Judas just like that. 
but absolute calm, absolute commitment, absolute trust, putting himself in the hands of his father. That's majesty. He doesn't react like a criminal would react in this case, screaming about his innocence. He was innocent. But he's calm, controlled, majestic as he willingly steps into his father's plan. And I think we also see his triumph in his confrontation with Peter and the disciples. Peter has no trust. The disciples didn't have any trust at that point. Peter doesn't understand his spiritual resources, but Christ does. And we see him compared to Peter, and he is totally calm. He's placing himself in his father's hands. He has a heavenly loyalty and submission that Peter and the disciples don't know anything about yet. They will, but at that moment they didn't. They were disloyal and they ran. He was loyal and he stayed. The triumph of Jesus in the midst of chaos. Last week we mentioned that he, Jesus, committed himself to the Father's will as he faced the cross. And he came through that last temptation with strength and triumph. And we said that everything we see after that temptation from now on is his great power and glory. And we see that here in our passage this morning, even as he's being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. Amazing victory, amazing power. Just before the message, we sang that new song that says, I can see the promised land, though there's pain within the plan. There's victory in the end. Your love is my battle cry. And it ended with, oh, nothing is impossible. The victory and triumph that we saw in Jesus that we're going to continue to see as we look at these last few days should convince us that we too have that victory in Christ. I'm going to ask the worship team to come and lead us in in singing, Hear the story from God's word that kings and priests and prophets heard. That would there would be a sacrifice and blood would flow to pay sin's price. Precious Lamb of glory, love's most wondrous story, heart of God's redemption of man, worship the Lamb of glory. Let's not be like the mindless crowd that listens to whatever tickles our ears. Let's not be like Judas who turned his back on Jesus because he thought there was something better. Let's not be like the deserting disciples who were fearful of what they faced and decided to trust themselves rather than God. But let's stand strong with a triumphant Savior, victorious and willing to endure whatever comes along because we know that God is in control. Father, this morning we praise you, we glorify you, we thank you for the fact that you are in control. Though we look at things around us and and the, the seeming chaos, it's nothing new. There was chaos in Jesus' time. There's been chaos between the time of Jesus on earth and our time now. But in the midst of it, you are always in control. Nothing has taken you by surprise. And Father, I pray that we would not succumb to fear, that we would not succumb to doubt, but that we would stand strong on you and your word and the fact that you are in control and depend on you for our salvation, not, not spiritual salvation, but even our physical salvation, uh, that you will be taken care of because you promised us that. Father, thank you in Jesus' name.